All right, welcome to 100 Centuries. This is episode two of the podcast. I'm Connie B. Dowell, and... I'm Stephen B. Dowell. And today we are talking about Alexander Hamilton, Aaron Burr, and their famous duel. Da, da, da! All right, so... um, (laughs) In the lead-up, we're going to talk... We may actually be overlapping each other a bit um, to try and get... Alexander Hamilton's biography, then Burr, um, and then the then duel. The so okay. we're gonna have a little bit of overlap because I have to talk a little bit about about Burr to talk about Hamilton, so. even before the duel. Okay, um, so to start with, Alexander Hamilton was born in the Caribbean on the island of Nevis um, on. 1755, although some sources say it might be 1757, but generally about that time. Um, His mother had been previously married before um, either marrying or taking up with his father. They were clearly living together as though they were a married couple and may have had some sort of ceremony that I guess a bunch of people considered not to be... um, not to be illegitimate because she was divorced. She she wasn't a widow. Um, and they considered Alexander Hamilton as a um, as, as as someone produced from this union to be illegitimate. And because of that, he couldn't go to a Christian school. Um, he couldn't inherit when his mother died. All of her stuff went to her previous husband. Um, so he had kind of a kind of a crummy childhood. Um, his family moved to St. Croix when he was about 10, and shortly thereafter, James Hamilton, his father, just left the family, and nobody knows what happened to him after he just disappeared. Um, and when he was around 13, again, we say around because we don't know exactly the dates on him, um, his mother died um, of yellow fever, and... He was taken in by other relatives and as I said before could not inherit his mother's property because he was illegitimate and it all went to her first husband. So, But coming out of this terrible childhood when he was around 14 or just generally in that early teens time he um, took up employment as a clerk for an American trader. And he learned a great deal in a short period of time about trade, about currency, about international trade in particular, and about business. And indeed, while his employer was ill for about six months, he took over the business and he was running things as a teenager until his boss could get better and take over the business again. Additionally, some things we could would note about his childhood. Um, he began writing profusely. He wrote for a newspaper. He also um, began to take up ideals of honor and ideals of human beings making their way in their life by merit and not by birth. Um, His own childhood certainly gave him that background and the slavery he saw around him growing up in the West Indies. He was profoundly anti-slavery and abolitionist for the rest of his life because of what he saw as a child. Anyway, after run, basically successfully running a business as a teenager, the people around him 
recognized that this guy was going places. And so they saved up some money and sent him to school in what would later become the U.S. And he went to King's College in 1773, and later that would be known as Columbia University. While he was at college, he quickly took up um, independence as a cause and began writing pamphlets. He also joined the army, and he was he was basically like leading troops and and doing all of his army stuff, all of his revolutionary stuff, while a student, while still in college. Um, and he led the first battalion, Fifth Field Artillery which interestingly is the only unit left from the Revolutionary War. When about 1776, he, he encountered George Washington and Washington was so impressed with his um, management of his troops that he uh, made him an aide de camp um, to Washington. And he ended up writing a great deal of Washington's correspondence. During that time, while he was hanging around Washington, working, um, writing his letters, working for independence, he was also very popular with the ladies. Um, and an interesting story um, comes up that Martha Washington um, was acquainted with this tomcat that was, was up all, all hours of the night, yowling and having fun, and nicknamed him Hamilton. Anyway, eventually he did settle down um, with a woman, Elizabeth, and the pronunciation is Schuyler. It's not spelled that way. I will put the spelling in the show notes, um, but everything I'm, I'm seeing is pronounced Schuyler. Um, and she was known as Eliza or Betsy, so you might also see those words. Um, she was from a rich family, and but they, they were very, relatively impressed with Hamilton as far as his accomplishments, even if he didn't really have much money and power to his name. While he, after he was married, while he was still working with Washington, he started to get kind of antsy because he was, you know, he was a, mostly a desk job and a lot of the glory of the Revolutionary War was happening outside and he wanted to go in active battle. And he even threatened to resign to leave and you know, at first Washington said, no, you're too valuable, I need you here, I need you to do this important work even if it doesn't look very glamorous. Um, but eventually Washington relented and he was leading a campaign at, at Yorktown. And he, he was a, maybe a little bit overzealous and trying to prove his bravery and his honor in battle and he even went so far as to drill his men completely where the enemy could see them. And the only reason they got shot was that the it was that the British were just so shocked that someone would do this, they thought it has to be a big trick. But it wasn't. It was just Hamilton maybe being a little bit stupid. Anyway, he he did lead the charge and it was a victory and he felt he felt pretty satisfied with that. And even wrote his wife to say, you know, okay, I've, I've had my moment of glory. And though he would never admit it, stupidity. And now I'm going to be a nice, safe husband for you. After the war, he completes his studies and becomes a lawyer. 
um, which is very important because later on he becomes um, one of the one of his, his, of course, his most famous accomplishment is um, being one of the drafters of the Constitution. And during that time, things were, and I'm kind of glossing over a lot of, a lot of stuff with Hamilton because there's, there's a great deal with um, Shay's Rebellion and the Whiskey Rebellion that we could get into with further podcasts. Um, but at that time in the U.S., things things were not rosy. They'd won the war, but didn't really know how to manage a country. And the Confederation really wasn't working. Um, States were arguing with each other. People were rebelling over taxes. And that was really scary because that was how the Revolutionary War started. People rebelling over taxes. Um, So in drafting the Constitution, um, Hamilton and others of like minds who called themselves federalists, favored a strong federal government to help manage these states um, rather than this looser confederation. And they were having some trouble getting, they needed to get enough states to ratify. They needed nine states to ratify. And as you may have had to read for high school history class, if you're an American, um, they wrote a series of papers Um, a great deal of them written by Hamilton, called the Federalist Papers, attempting to convince people of the rightness, of the the reason of their their cause. They're trying to get everybody to ratify the Constitution. And of course, the Constitution was eventually ratified. Um, And in April of 1789, George Washington took the oath of office as the first president, and he made Hamilton the Secretary of the Treasury. At that time, you know, it doesn't sound like a big job, maybe at first, although I'm sure if you asked the Secretary of the Treasury, they would tell you it was a very big job. But at the time, it was a really big job because the U.S. was in a big mess. They owned, they owed tons of money. They had huge debt. The majority of which, importantly, was to Americans. Um, not only did the federal government have a huge debt, the states had huge debts from the war as well. And Hamilton proposed a plan to pay off, to, to not just take that big debt, but to also make it bigger by taking um, the state debt and making that federal debt, buying them out. And that was called assumption. Well, you know, that's never going to be popular. Let's take a big debt and make it bigger. What was Hamilton doing here? Well, he needed, we just had this new federal government established. And he needed everybody on board. If Americans owned part of federal debt, if more Americans owned federal debt, they were going to feel like they had a stake in the federal government. And some people were opposed to the plan simply because it was a greater amount of debt. And some people saw what he was doing, including um, Jefferson. And though they called themselves Republicans, they don't quite bear some, they bear some similarities, but not, they're not really the Republican Party of today. So um, just a note for future, when we talk about Republicans for this podcast, or for this particular episode, um, we're not talking modern Republicans at all. 
So Jefferson and the Republicans were very opposed to this plan because they favored more of a looser confederation. They favored an agrarian, independent, you know, state-based kind of system. So Jefferson and Hamilton were, were kind of at odds here, but they ended up coming to a compromise because at the same time this was going on, um, at the same time, there was a debate about moving the U.S. Capitol from New York to its present location. Um, and Hamilton, of course, wanted it to stay in New York. He had been living in New York ever since he came to the U.S. New York was his place. He did not want it to go. And Jefferson wanted it to be much more, it would be much more convenient to him in Virginia when it's down um, where it is currently in Washington, D.C. So they, one day, um, Jefferson and Monroe and Hamilton all went to, had sat down to dinner and had what was called the dinner table compromise. Um, the Republicans would agree to assumption if they moved the Capitol. And that's what happened. Anyway, um, after that, there are some interesting personal events for Hamilton. Um, he was alone in Philadelphia one summer when a lonely young woman came to his door and said, oh, I'm a New Yorker and I know you're a New Yorker too and I'm in terrible trouble, won't you help me? Uh, my husband has left me, I have no money. Well, Hamilton felt bad for her and he got some money and he went to her house and she had an interesting way of making it up to him and she kept on making it up to him for about a year or maybe a little bit more than a year. Um, well, eventually um, what came about was her husband had never left her. They were intending to blackmail him and he ended up paying blackmail money and um, when government officials got wind of this, um, some congressmen came around to his house because they thought they, they were concerned that he might be taking treasury money and doing um, unethical things with it. Um, so they, they came to confront him and to see what the situation was and of course he turned around and gave them all of Maria Reynolds, that was her name, all of her love letters to him and said, no, no, this isn't embezzlement. This is an affair. Um, so they were all very embarrassed and they left. Um, but that's not the end of it. It's coming back. Um, it's coming back. Anyway, as he continued to work um, for Washington as a Secretary of Treasury, um, Washington kind of encouraged him to take more and more power, and the sec and the the position of Secretary of the Treasury kind of got bigger and bigger and bigger, and he became more and more involved in different things. And indeed, he wanted the United States to become more involved um, in the economy in general. He established the National Bank, which is the forerunner of the Federal Reserve. Um, he was spearheading, you know, national currency. Um, 
spurring the growth of the stock market. And he wanted the, the government to get involved in large-scale industry, um, which of course made Jefferson really mad because he wanted a more agrarian economy. And Hamilton envisioned a much more industrial one, much more industrial, much more unified. And that, that disagreement really played out in the press um, for a long time. And 18th century, you know, if we think that modern kind of political mudslinging is nasty, 18th century political mudslinging was, was really nasty. They would say all kinds of terrible things about the op opponents. They would say the opponents were dead. They would say, you know, they would make up stories about their heritage and... Well, Hamilton was already illegitimate, so people were more willing to believe weird stuff about him. It doesn't help that Hamilton had a personality that really rubbed people the wrong way. He believed he he whatever he believed was right was the only right thing, and he didn't believe in pandering to other people and making them feel better about themselves or, or compromising it in. in um, in any way, he didn't believe in making the other side feel like they were right, and he thought that was unethical. So he ticked off a lot of people, and the press had a fun day with that. Um, and indeed, eventually, those letters did get spilled, or, you know, those um, insinuations about him and Maria Reynolds and the money did kind of get leaked to the press. And eventually what Hamilton ended up doing was actually, in, since the leak was out, he just published the letters and said, okay, this is what really happened because he valued honesty that much. Um, unfortunately, the American public didn't value honesty as much as Hamilton and that was a huge backlash for him. Anyway, by 1796, he, he was a basically a private citizen. He had kind of had enough of um, the political life, but he could never quite keep to himself. Um, so he was he was never quite retired. He was still um, an active and practicing lawyer in New York, and indeed um, worked on several cases with Aaron Burr, who will come up again very much so later. Um, he was, he was very much in debt because he tended to take cases based on, based on honor, based on the merit of the case and not on who could pay and took on maybe too many pro bono cases. He was also at that time working closely with his son, Philip, and he had really high hopes for Philip um, and for Philip becoming someone in in a position of power even more so than Hamilton himself could have been. Um, for instance, Philip had advantages that, that Alexander Hamilton never had. Advantages of education while he was young, advantages of birth, he was, he was definitely legitimate. Um, also possibly um, he might have hoped that, that Philip would just be more liked than, than Hamilton. Anyway, and at the, at the same time, he was also active in, um, in, in various causes, specifically abolition. 
out. Um, Hamilton began ticking off some other people as well. He also had um, a definitely a disagreement with Adams, um, especially over some, some some issues with with French ships being outfitted for war with England in the U.S., um, which also is subjects for for another huge podcast. But nevertheless, he had he had ticked off. Um, so he ticked off Jefferson. He ticked off Adams. So he was ticked off two presidents, even though one of them has not yet been president. Um, and only the first president, um, George Washington, really has been his protector. And when Washington died, you know, all of that goodwill that came along with Washington's protection died with him. Um, we can skip over a little bit about um, Burr and and Hamilton with, with Burr Burr's election to the vice presidency. Um, just to say that in 1801, Philip, the son he had so much hoped for, was challenged to a duel, um, ironically, over his over his father's honor, over Alexander Hamilton's honor. Um, that he, Alexander Hamilton, that the person in the duel accused him of wanting to overthrow um, Jefferson's government even by force. And Philip could not stand that. He was, you know, there were words exchanged. He was challenged to a duel. Philip asked his father what to do. And the fa- his father said, if you d- back down from this, your political career is over. You have no choice. This has gotten this far. You have to do it. And so they, they did in 1801 in Weehawken, New Jersey. They had their duel because you could not do, do um, duels were outlawed in New York. And Philip was killed. And it was a huge blow to the Hamilton family that Alexander Hamilton could, could barely even stand up at the funeral. Um, so now let's take a little trip back in time and start with Aaron Burr. All right, that's where I step in. Hello, everyone. Uh, today I'm going to talk to you about Aaron Burr. Uh, Burr's childhood in general was very much the opposite of, of Alexander Hamilton's um, in some ways. Uh, Burr was born in Newark, New Jersey in 1756 um, to a reverend and president of the College of New Jersey, which later became Princeton. Okay? However, both his father and mother died when he was two, and thus Burr ended up being raised by one of his uncles, a Timothy Edwards. Uh, uncle on his mother's side, of course. Um, even though this had happened to him, because he had come from such a prestigious family, obviously being the son of a university president, um, and the, the Edwards family, if you know your American history, is, was rather well-known and famous at the time, Burr thus had everything that he really needed in life provided for him. Uh, he, was, uh, he was admitted to the College of New Jersey uh, at 13, uh, now he had been rejected once, but but uh, on his second application they let him in, uh, and he graduated in 1772, and then went off to go study theology, just like and follow in his father's footsteps. But after a few years, he changed his mind and changed career paths. At 19, he decided instead to go study law, and he went to go study law with his brother-in-law uh, in Connecticut. His brother-in-law was uh, named Tapping Reeve. 
So uh, he, he goes up to uh, Connecticut and starts to uh, starts to study law. While in Connecticut at the time, uh, things of the revolution began to heat up. And so you know he kind of stopped studying law to make sure to go join the Continental Army. And he took part of the Quebec expedition led by Benedict Arnold. In fact, he was sent up the St. Lawrence River to General Montgomery, who promoted him to captain and made him an aide-de-camp. He also distinguished himself greatly during the Battle of Quebec. Okay. All of this was brought to Washington's attention, and thus uh, Burr was reassigned to go serve in Washington's staff in Manhattan. Okay. Uh, but Burr, like Hamilton, desired a field command, and after two weeks of serving under Washington, uh, Burr, Burr got his chance. He was given a field command and incidentally saved an entire Continental Brigade at the Battle of New York and also actually ended up saving Hamilton in that same battle. Uh, kind of a small little little <laughs> footnote to history. Uh, Hamilton's, Hamilton's command at the time was actually saved by Burr. Okay. However... Washington, the next day during his staff notes, actually snubbed Burr and his accomplishments and failed to mention the, uh, Burr's achievements at the Battle of New York. And this caused Burr, Burr to be greatly, greatly insulted, and he became estranged from General Washington. So after that, Burr basically uh, bumped around, the, uh, uh, bumped around the, the army. He was eventually made a lieutenant colonel, and he helped, uh, he helped lead uh, Malcolm's Continental Regiment in actions in New Jersey. However, in 1778, Burr suffered a heat stroke uh, at the disastrous Battle of the Monmouth, uh, thus leaving him rather incapacitated for, for a good month's time. Uh, in 1779, due to failing health, he leaves the army to go continue his studies in Connecticut. Even though he returns back to Connecticut to continue studying uh, a law, he rallied a local militia at New Haven to, and, and helped to protect uh, Connecticut from, from British uh, raiders. Okay. In 1782, he, pa- he he becomes a lawyer and he passes the bar in, in Albany. Right? And he moves to New York City to practice law. Uh, while there, uh, he his wife, Theodosa, uh, died and left him, left him and only his surviving daughter, okay, uh, who he basically um, insisted on educating equally, as equally as he had been educated. So he was very progressive when it came to his daughter's education. He was very hands-on. Now, also in New York at that time, he also maybe had two other children with a servant, uh, a a woman named Mary Emmons, who was uh, of of East Indian descent and actually from Calcutta. Uh, Now, um, you know, unlike others, uh, other uh, American history folks who who who, you know, have extramarital relations. Well, actually, this was not extramarital, but who had relations with a servant. Burr never denied this, and in fact, to this day, uh, children from from that relationship are accepted by the current Burr family that remains today as being legitimate. Okay. Kind of a side note there. Later on, Burr uh, began a political career and served in the New York State Assembly in 1784 and 1785, and he became Attorney General of New York in 1789. He then, uh, under the newly formed uh, uh, United States under the Constitution, became New York's first senator in 1791, and he served in that post in 1797. Right? He did run for president in 1796 and ended up coming in fourth with only 30 votes. 
and he was behind Adams, Jefferson, and a third candidate named Pickney. Uh, this was a major shock to Burr because Burr had basically thought that he he had uh, he had had this election sealed. In fact, he thought backroom deals he had made uh, for support from Jefferson's camp was going to give him the election, and unfortunately, it did not. Okay, in 1800. Uh, he and Jefferson ended up running together, uh, with Jefferson agreeing to run for president and Burr for, for vice president in exchange for New York's votes for Jefferson. So because of this, Burr and his backroom political deals end up getting him sometimes called the father of the modern campaign. Uh, and in fact, he ended up using the Tammany Hall Social Club in this election to win the votes in the Electoral College. Now, even though he ran, he, uh, he ran with Jefferson specifically as vice president, the election ended up getting tied, all right, uh, with 73 votes for each man. And Burr immediately tried to swindle, uh, swing, swing the House in his favor uh, to get the House of Representatives to, uh, to vote for him. But Hamilton and his Federalist supporters ended up securing Jefferson's votes uh, or it actually ended up securing votes for Jefferson because at this point everyone had thought that Burr was a terrible choice. Okay, um, so this is the beginning of seeds between of of Burr's very storied history here. Okay, now even though he becomes vice president uh, after as as the you know outcome of this, which he was always supposed to be anyway, Burr uh, Burr you know ran the office of vice president in quite a favorable manner. Um, remaining impartial in many, many votes, including uh, the uh, the uh, the impeachment of, of Chief Justice Samuel Chase, where where Burr uh, remained completely impartial and established many of the presidents that are sent currently in the Senate today. In fact, as a president of the Senate, as vice president, he's considered to actually be a very, very good one. Okay. Uh, now this though bringing us to his vice presidency brings us to a, the, the main event here, the duel between him and Hamilton. Okay. Would you like me to start? Um, however you'd like to start. Okay. Well, um, basically, kind of to give you some background on how this started, uh, Jefferson made motions to remove Burr as vice president um, in 1804. He didn't want to have anything to do with Burr. He didn't want Burr to be his running mate. And so basically set it up where Burr would lose. So Burr, seeing the writing on the wall, decided to run instead for governor of New York. Okay, and and he lost that election spectacularly. In fact, to date, it was one of the worst governor or biggest, I guess, one-sided outcomes in a governor's election in New York, um, even still today. He really lost. Okay, now Burr felt that part of the reason that he lost was a personal sneer campaign campaign against him, led by his opponents. Okay. In particular, Burr felt published remarks from a letter from a Dr. Cooper to a Mr. Schuler, uh, excuse me, Schuler, Skyler, a Skyler. Uh, oh, okay. See, thank you, Connie. <laughs> it's a weird spelling. Well, that is an absolute weird spelling, and I, I totally had been reading this as Schuler this entire time. Um, but uh, he felt that published remarks in this letter sent from a Dr. Cooper to to Skyler, attributed to Alexander Hamilton, were particularly defaming. Take it away, Kai. Um, essentially, he he, uh, according to the letter, called Burr a very dangerous man, and it does kind of it does kind of score with his beliefs um, that Burr 
there had been exchanges. Um, Alexander Hamilton value, really valued honor above all and serving his country. And Burr had made remarks to the effect that um, working in politics is particularly profitable. And unlike, you know, well, Hamilton had sort of stringently resisted and, you know, not even unethical, but any kind of use of his power at all to gain himself wealth, um, for which he was deeply in debt after he left politics. But anyway, these remarks were said, and Burr took offense. Yes. In fact, Burr demanded an apology, or at least a denial or recanting from Hamilton. Now, there's a big problem here. Hamilton's, these remarks were attributed to handling in a third-party letter. There's no proof outside this letter that Hamilton ever said these things. And so because of this, Hamilton replied to Burr that he couldn't account for or be responsible for something someone else had wrote. Okay. Yep. Uh, obviously, this did not deter Burr at all, who was enraged. And after a series of escalating letters, challenged Hamilton to a duel. Yep. And the weird thing is, by, by 18th century standards, or... At this point, it was early 19th century, but essentially by the standards of the time, um, Hamilton had done what was expected. He addressed the remarks in a way that sh that he was attempting to pacify Burr, but didn't take blame onto himself. Um, but the fact that that Burr you know, would not accept that and consistently push the issue, he. He seemed to want it to escalate to violence. Yes. Now, so Burr and Hamilton met again at a famous location. Weehawken, New Jersey. Does that sound familiar? That's where Philip had his duel just three years, years prior. Prior. And, uh, you know, the, the seconds basically made the arrangements for them to have a duel and set them apart. Now, the actual events of the duel or a bit uh, a bit yeah. up in the air. Uh, it is it is currently stated that, you know, Hamilton had, I guess, right a first shot or something and mm -hmm. shot purposely to miss Burr, which was, again, a custom out of time. Um, he, he either fires his pistol in the air or fires it so that way he would intentionally miss Burr in Burr's general direction, but clearly aiming to miss Burr. Burr, on the other hand, decided he would have none of this and shot to kill shooting uh, Hamilton in the in the abdomen, uh, and what Hamilton immediately recognized was a fatal uh, fatal wound. Now, there was a lot of circumstances beyond this. Uh, for starters, no one's quite sure if that's exactly how things transpired. Yeah. Uh, another thing, too, is the pistols used, Hamilton's pistol may have had a hair trigger as well, meaning that the shot that he took... Um, he may have actually shot too early, or may have shot, uh, in, or, or or was not, or surprised by his shot, um, you know, because he had a defective pistol. Uh, now, some people even claim that he chose a defective pistol on purpose. So there's lots of speculation yeah. here. What is generally known, though, is in that written remarks sent from Hamilton prior to the duel, Hamilton made it clear that he was intending to miss. He was not intending to shoot to kill. Yeah, and eyewitness accounts even kind of. Or differ on this. Some people will say, well, clearly he was in, not intending to kill. Others say, we only realized this later when we saw a bullet in a tree 
that he had not intended to kill. Um, and it was, like, way far away that he couldn't possibly have been aiming at, at Burr. Um, other eyewitnesses say that after Hamilton fired his shot, which turned out to be in a tree, um, Burr stumbled as if hit. Was Burr surprised? Was Burr feigning? Um, don't know. No one quite knows for sure. Just like, well, though, another thing that's not sure is, is Wilder, uh, also is that if Hamilton actually shot first, the shots were in such rapid yeah. succession that people, you know, assumed Hamilton shot first, but they weren't entirely sure. Uh, they both could have shot at the same time, and, and Burr's shot could have just been a little sooner, causing Hamilton to miss. Well... And the end result of that is Hamilton is is killed, basically, by the yeah. vice president. I want to re reiterate <laughs> this. Burr is still vice president at this time, all right, uh, and dies in agony a few days later. Um, he, he and, you know, after a long, prolonged injury. The end result of this is that Burr is charged with murder in both New York and New Jersey, um, because while dueling is completely illegal in New York... It is also mostly legal in New Jersey at the time. Uh, I say mostly because there are certain places and certain localities where it was allowed, but even then, killing somebody in the duel was considered to be bad form. Okay, was 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 probable, well, was considered a murder. Okay, so Burr's response to this was to flee to South Carolina. Uh, he did not never face trial for the duel with with Hamilton. In fact. Burr specifically avoided New York and New Jersey until all the charges against him were eventually dropped. Okay, so he kind of turned turned tail and fled. Okay, the, a lot of this afterwards, a lot of Burr's life after this incident becomes very sordid. Um, lots of he he ended up uh, getting into a lot of trouble. Let's say um, most of it by his own causing after this effect. Uh, basically, in 1805, no longer vice president, uh, Burr heads west, and uh, he ended up leasing a bunch of Spanish land from Spain uh, in what is now eastern Louisiana. Burr then, while there, began to secretly raise an army with the intentions of claiming this land for his own in the event the U.S. went to war with Spain. Now, this war never materialized. The U.S. and Spain, in fact, made a peace treaty, the Adamus Onus Treaty, uh, in 18, I believe 1817, maybe 1819, I can't remember the exact date. Um, should have written that down. Uh, <laughs> but uh, in which uh, all of that land ends up going to the United States. Okay. Uh, because of this, uh, Jefferson, when he catches wind of all this, decides to declare Burr a traitor. Okay. And in during the uh, basically during the preceding, you know, investigation and eventual trial. Some of Burr's secret correspondences with the British and Spanish ministers in Washington revealed that Burr's intention was actually to help Mexico overthrow Spanish power in the Southwest and then to establish him, Burr, as a new emperor in Mexico. <laughs> okay. Uh, this absolutely was illegal under the Neutrality Act of 1794, and and Jefferson wanted wanted Burr's head. He he. He filed charges for tre for treason against Burr. Now, fortunately for Burr, there was very little evidence of his treason, and in the trial, 
which was actually presided by Chief Justice John Marshall, uh, Burr ended up being acquitted on constitutional grounds. Uh, the treason was not admissible in open court, and there was not uh, there was not two witnesses to the treason in order to it fall under constitutional grounds. And ultimately, the letters to the the most damning letter against Burr ended up being a forgery, or rather, a copy, and therefore was considered inadmissible. Okay, uh, that led the the actual charge would have been a misdemeanor, and so Jefferson's administration then try uh, tries to get him on the misdemeanor charge. But of course, that breaks again the Constitution, and Burr gets off scot-free. Burr was acquitted. Okay. Um, but because of this, Burr's political career is absolutely ruined, and he's basically drummed out of the United States. Uh, so he faded, he begins to fade into obscurity, mostly so he can escape his creditors, but also too so he can get, get away from his solely past. He first goes to England, um, where he kind of bums around, he bums around England and a few other European um, countries, and attempt to uh, renew his goals of conquering Mexico. Uh, after a few years of this, of trying to raise an army and trying to get funding for this, the British government just gets tired of him and deports him from England. He then tries to go to France, but Napoleon Bonaparte will have none of his antics as well, and so he's forced back to the United States. Uh, in the United States, he basically resumes practicing law in New York, but under the surname Edwards, which, if you will recognize, is his mother's maiden name. Finally, uh, Burr basically lived the rest of his life in rather peaceful obscurity in New York, you know, helping to win some some small high, some small cases and establishing some goodwill with with people in New York City. Um, and before he finally dies of a stroke in 1836, he actually had the stroke in 1834, but um, he's done in by the stroke in 1836, and so that marks the end of his rather. <laughs> rather interesting and uh, um, scandalous yes. political career. So, uh, to put things in perspective, we had a vice president murder somebody and then try to steal Mexico. Yes. Kind of a fun Furthermore, sort of... Furthermore, he know. murdered the guy on the $10 bill. <laughs> Again, a uh, a, a, a most interesting of the Constitution <laughs> on the ten dollar bill. A former Secretary of the former Treasury, former Secretary of the Treasury, who established the forerunner of the uh, of the Federal Reserve. Federal Reserve. Yeah, one of the, the founder of the American economy was murdered by a vice president. One of the aftermaths of this all too was actually the Twelfth Amendment to the Constitution, which was ratified in part because the federal government realized having the vice president be the loser of the presidential election to not the president good. was not a good setup. And given how much that Jefferson hated Burr, um, in fact, Jefferson hated Burr more than he hated Hamilton, uh, which says a lot. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, kind of gives you an idea of why that's, that system ended up failing miserably. Now, after that, all pres uh, the, the election for, pre for vice president happens separately. In the electoral college, probably a good thing. Probably a good thing. So, so anyway, that's that's that, the history. That's that is the story of Hamilton, Hamilton and, and Burr, Burr and and craziest man to ever be vice president. <laughs> probably very colorful, very colorful, colorful characters. characters. One guy who was really abrasive, and one guy who was, was probably cool. just bonkers. Um, and uh, and their 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 history together. 
Their history together. So next up on the podcast, we will be talking about, we'll be returning to World War I. Um, Last episode, we talked about the shot the shots fired that started the war, um, the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and Sophie. Um, and this time, next time, rather, we'll be talking about the actual declarations of war, which all happened at the beginning of August 1914. Um, I promise we won't be nothing but a World War One podcast, but there's so many, you know, anniversaries coming up in the next four years um, that... That seems too big to ignore. Too big to ignore. All right. This has been 100 Centuries signing out.